Hello to all of our wonderful friends in falconry from around the world. Thank you all again so much for joining us for this last episode of the Arizona Falconers Association series, which is a tribute to Harry McElroy. After talking to Harry and after recording all of these episodes for all these amazing people in Arizona, it became apparent pretty quickly that a tribute episode to Harry needed to happen. There's no way, as we stated before, that you can encompass what someone who's been on this earth for over 90 years has meant to so many people. And yeah, I guess the only way that we can kind of sometimes continue on somebody's story is by letting other people share their recollection and memories of a person and just to give different perspectives on what someone's friendship and falconry contributions have meant and the perfect way to do that i found is by letting a group of people share their sentiments and experiences with a certain individual with the rest of the world and I know I would like to start off by saying thank you again to Harry and Beth for allowing me into their home and for their willingness to share some of their life experiences with the wider world and for helping to make this series happen. My only regret is the same regret that I've had with some other Falconers that I am now fortunate to be able to call friends and that I wish I could have known you all sooner and had a chance to go hawking with you all and, um, you know, just to get to know you better and, you know, a little bit longer. But such is life. And, you know, I hope that this episode, along with the episode that I that I did with you for, you know, our 100th episode, did a small amount of justice to tell your story a little bit and... You know, without saying any more, I'm going to go ahead and just turn things over to Jamaica Smith and let her start off this tribute by sharing some of her favorite memories and recollections. Thank you, John. We're honored that you came and spent um, Mother's Day weekend working so hard on behalf of the club, and we're really glad that you were able to get an interview in with Harry and um, gosh, 10 minutes. Do you have an hour? I could talk for an hour. I could talk for three hours about Harry. So, um, I've been an Arizona Falconer my whole falconry career. And Harry was one of the founding members of the Arizona Falconers Association. And Harry is a living legend within Arizona. And we, we think very highly of him here. And, um, uh, my first opportunity to meet Harry came very early. I, I got started in falconry in 1996. And then because I was, well, frankly, because I was young and didn't know any better, I got roped into club politics right away and was just a regional coordinator type thing for the club at that time. But we had a we had a little kerfuffle happen within the club and there was a split between the officers and um, I stood firm on the principles I felt strongly about and um, 
you know, ironically, the the guy that was kind of heading the charge on the opposite side of the fence, we're now super good friends too. So it's funny how all of that works out over time. But at any rate, uh, after that had all gone down, and I honestly, I don't even recall now how Harry was even aware of all of this going on. Perhaps we were communicating via email, I'm not sure. But uh, he took the time to make an inscription in the front of a book and, and gift it to me and uh, telling me that he was, he was impressed with what I had done on the, the stand that I had taken on behalf of, of the club and falconry at the time. And um, I was just like flabbergasted that Harry McElroy had noticed that and I kind of opened the door to, uh, to going to visit Harry at his house in Wilcox and getting to go out with him and see him fly the, the great Harris Hawk Refugio that he was flying at the time and see him on, on horseback. He was on muleback the first time that we went with him. And uh, I think the second time we went down there, he had started to collect his Peruvian horses and we got to go out with him and, and, uh, and see him in action. Um, and, and it was, it was truly, you know, amazing to watch and inspired me that I, not so much that I wanted to become a horseback hawker, but, um, because I saw how hard work that was, but just that I wanted to reach the level of falconry that, that Harry was at. Um, and, and, and Harry's falconry wasn't really about the training of the birds. It was about working with the birds to get the best um, game hawking out of them. He was truly a dedicated game hawker, and that's what inspired me. I wanted to be that, and I wanted to hunt quail after seeing Harry hunt quail. Um, and so uh, I got a Harris hawk, and I tried to hunt quail and discovered it's a lot harder than Harry made it look like. And uh, I knew right away, well, first thing I got to do is get a dog. And uh, Harry was a, a big help with with any time I had a question about what should I be doing to improve my Harris hawking or, or my quail hawking, he uh, he was a source and he never hesitated to um, provide me with, uh, with the advice that he had available for me. And he was just very generous in that way. And um, so he had switched from Harris hawks to uh, Aplomatos and he was still in Wilcox and trying to fly a female that he had already been flying for a season. And he had, this next season, her second season, he was trying to add a male and, and cast fly them. And the, the little male just wasn't doing well and had this re- weird little wing infection. And he was trying to treat it with the, with the help of his vet. And it, it just wasn't going well. And, um, he, uh, he was very impressed with Greg's, my husband Greg's falconry, and he wanted to gift this Aplomato to Greg because he thought Greg would enjoy hunting quail with that Aplomato. And uh, I explained to Harry, I, I said, I think, I think Harry, you're the kind of person that will hunt quail with any hawk that'll hunt quail, because um, that's what you're about. But Greg is more about the occipiters, so he'll hunt anything that's available to hunt as long as he's flying an occipiter. And I, you know, I said, he's not really interested in the Aplomato, but I would be. 
because I had seen Jim Nelson talk about Aplomatos and I thought, well, that is just really neat, but I'll never be able to afford an Aplomato. And so Harry gifted me that little Tiersel Aplomato. And uh, he went on to be an amazing quail hawk. I spent three years flying him. And that first year that I got him, shortly after he gifted him to me, Harry made the decision to move to Kingman. I had jokingly suggested that we had an awful lot of quail when he started talking about maybe I want to move where there's some quail. And uh, he moved to Kingman, and suddenly I, I had an amazing opportunity to learn quail hawking by going quail hawking with one of the true masters of quail hawking and doing it from horseback to boot. And so we dove right in. I, I flew that little Tiersla Plumato by myself for a couple of months that fall. And then um, pretty soon discovered that I was going to do better if I was on a horse. And Harry loaned me one of his horses. And next thing you know, he says, well, I think we should just start going out together. And so I just started going out with Harry uh, every other day, we would fly those Aplomatos together, and we did that for three years with my Tiersel Aplomato, and he flew a couple of different females during that time. And uh, what an incredible gift to, to spend that kind of time and learn from, from someone like Harry McElroy. And, uh, and then we tr transitioned at that point um, when he was ready to, to move on to something different. He wanted to go back to Harris Hawks and I had a decision to make. Do I keep flying my Aplomato by myself or do I keep hawking with Harry McElroy? Well, that was a no-brainer. And I'd already, I think I felt amazed that that Aplomato had been successful for three seasons. He took over 300 head of quail over three seasons. And he, he had some close calls, but he hadn't been killed. And that's, you know, they just, I felt like they had a little sign on their back that said, uh, available to eat you know, to everything out there. So I, uh, I felt like, you know, we had run our course. And so I, I placed him in a breeding program and went ahead and, and got into Harris hawking with Harry so that I could continue to, uh, hawk with Harry. And, and I also decided I had to get my own horse and, and, uh, uh, did everything that was necessary to keep, um, to extend those amazing years of quail hawking together and that entire time, he was so generous with me and my family with things like gifting me that hawk and um, eventually gifting one of his horses to my daughter when she got too big to ride double with me on the horse. Um, and the three of us would be out there in the desert, him on his Peruvian and she on the Peruvian that he had gifted to her. And me on my little Mustang that wasn't a Peruvian and was quite the character, gave us a lot of uh, epic adventures as well. So Harry, uh, Harry's time here in Kingman um, is something that I will treasure for the rest of my days. It was, it was truly formative in my falconry experience. It made me who I am today in terms of my memories and my skills as a falconer today, um, and I, I can't ever, uh, I can't ever express how grateful I am for that opportunity to spend that time with Harry and become, become a great uh, uh, part of a great friendship as well. Because um, 
he's just such a generous and caring person. And I, I've always, when people have asked about Harry, you know, I, oh, you know Harry McElroy? And, I, and I'll, I'll say, well, if you're interested in flying a Giamato or, or Cooper Sock or whatever it is, and, and you're looking for advice, you just send him an email. He, he really loves interacting with people. And people would always be kind of astonished that, that he was that um, easy to get in touch with and, and that uh, reachable. And uh, he's just a, a really nice guy like, like a lot of other falconers I've met in the falconry community. And I would describe him to people as a true gentleman, a true master falconer who was always interested in learning from other falconers. That's what he always amazed me. I would take someone to meet him, and they could be a brand-new apprentice flying their very first hawk, and he would sit down and have a genuine conversation with that person and make them feel really good, but he wasn't doing it to make them feel really good. That was just a side effect. He was genuinely interested in learning from everybody's falconry experience, and I think that's part of what made him, makes him an exceptional human today and made him an exceptional falconer throughout his 70-plus year career as a falconer. So um, thank you, Harry, for everything you've done. Thanks so much, Jamaica, for sharing all that with us. It was a great way to get us started here on this tribute episode. And now we're going to hear from Matt Mullinex and hear what he has to say about some of his memories and experiences with Harry. Thanks, John, for uh, for letting me chime in here on uh, on the uh, on the Harry McElroy show. Um, I I have to say that there's really no way to to underestimate. Uh, or, or overestimate rather, um, you know, how much of an impact uh, Harry's writing and his falconry have had on my own writing and falconry. Um, just been just sort of a fundamental sea change and, and, and kind of, I found him right at the right time. I, I had been uh, practicing falconry for a couple of years, uh, not, not particularly well um, had, uh, you know, found some good mentors, which was a big step in the right direction. But, um, but the, but the texts that were available at the time were, you know, basically the old English texts. And, um, there was North American falconry and hunting hawks, but it was a little bit stiff and, you know, didn't seem to apply, um, to everything I was trying to do or, or to my area. I mean, I was hunting squirrels in, in Georgia with red-tailed hawks. And, and this was, you know, even, uh, you know, even in North American falconry and hunting hawks, uh, at the time was not, uh, was not really a well, uh, described, uh, you know, part of the sport. So, um, the, the thing that I found in Harry's uh, book and, and it was desert hawking, um, that was so amazing to me was that, uh, that it was clear that his focus was on, on catching things. I mean, this was a book that, that, uh, you know, you, you could hear Harry's voice clearly through it. It was, you know, uh, well presented, you know, small, uh, paragraphs, uh, simple statements, uh, pretty funny I found and have, you know, continued to find it very funny. Um, but but on every page there was there was something that was unmistakably uh, you know focused on 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 hunting on, on actually catching things and and everything else was sort of secondary and this was really the first you know the first book uh, by anybody I had read where it was less about you know process and procedure and how things ought to look and how things you know 
um, should should work in ideal circumstances and really more about how things actually happen in the field. And and it was like, uh, you know, curtain was was pulled away and you got to see, you know, actual falconry and a, and a guy that was, you know, actually doing it and, and writing about how it worked and, and, and sometimes how it didn't work, which is, you know, also just as helpful. So so Harry, Harry, Harry gave that to everybody. And and, uh, you know, the first Desert Hawking was. I guess it was, he, he was, I know he was writing in the 60s. I think that came out in the 70s. Um, so there's, you know, been at least two generations of falconers who have really uh, benefited from uh, from Harry's books. And um, he's got about four of them, but he also, you know, was writing in uh, in the uh, British journals uh, from time to time and in, in, in other journals, uh, North American journals. And so we all, uh, you know, had an opportunity to, to learn from him. I, uh, you know, later in life was able to go uh, meet him, which was fantastic. I've uh, been out there twice and, uh, and, and both times have just, uh, you know, had exactly the experience that you, that you think you would have, uh, you know, go, going up to the master and, uh, and he is, you know, not coincidentally like a, you know, at, at this time uh, in his life when I met him was sort of like the the little old man on the hill, and you you had to climb the hill to get up to him and and talk to him, and uh, you know f- found him to be wonderfully um, uh, you know friendly and hospitable and 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 open with his knowledge as much as you would expect him from anything he's written, and um, and the the first time I went out there actually uh, had just a you know fantastic experience of uh, of taking my my Harris Hawk out uh, on one of his horses, and. Um, and and uh, you know, uh, riding out into the same area that he uh, hunted in, you know, every day for years and years, and and um, and was surprised to see the Harris Hawk take to it, and um, and and kind of a funny uh, story. I, I had never hawked on horseback, so uh, so Harry just sort of you know, he, he I guess he maybe he asked me if I'd ever ridden a horse, but I don't think he even really cared, frankly. I, I think he trusted the horse pretty well. Um, and the horse was wonderful. I think it was, uh, the horse's name was a uh, dancer, um, a Peruvian Paso that he, you know, that he likes. And, um, and so dancer uh, t- took me out and I, you know, remembered how to ride. I think it hadn't been, you know, it'd been since high school, since I'd been on the back of a horse. Uh, the Harris Hawk was much more comfortable than I was. Um, we, we got out in the field and, and uh, caught a rabbit pretty quick off the back of a horse, which I, you know, had the presence of mind to, to realize how cool that was, um, and how I'm probably never going to do it again. But, uh, <laughs> but I, in my excitement, I, you know, I jumped off the horse and ran over and made into my hawk and, and was picking up the hawk on the rabbit and looked behind me and the horse had, you know, it had sort of galloped away, <laughs> you know, Harry McElroy's horse out into the desert. Um, you know, probably half a mile back to, uh, back to the trailer. And, uh, so, you know, I was panicked and embarrassed and, uh, and just, you know, really didn't know what to do, but, uh, but I, you know, I yelled and, and the horse, I could see the horse in the distance, lift its head up and ran all the way back. Dancer ran all the way back to me and stopped right in front of me. Let me, uh, remount and, and, uh, and take him all the way back. So, uh, so a testament, uh, to, you know, to Harry's ability to train anything, evidently, uh, you know, just as well as his hawks. So, um, so that was fun and, you know, cherished memory. Um, I know that everybody who has uh, had an opportunity to meet Harry or, or read Harry has, uh, you know, similar story. Um, back in the day, we, we used to call him uh, because, it, you know, this, this was prior to the internet and, 
Um, and I'm sure he, I'm sure he fielded calls, you know, pretty much as soon as he got home, uh, and, and for the rest of the night, but every single time he was just as, as gracious and generous, uh, with his information, uh, as he could be. I remember, um, as it, as it got later on in years, you had to talk louder and louder. And, uh, and now I'm in the position where somebody's got to talk louder to me too. So I really appreciate that. Uh, you, have, you know, fantastic patience and, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful help to the entire community. So, uh, look, I'm glad you're able to share, uh, your, your stories, uh, from Harry and, uh, talk to the man himself and, and get him on, uh, you know, get him on record for forever. Um, so, so people can have, uh, at least a little bit of taste of what the rest of us have, have been fortunate to, to, to know in person. Um, Harry, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. You've been a huge impact, uh, positive on, on my falconry and I can't, uh, can't thank you enough for that. We appreciate you, Matt, and thanks again for being a part of this episode and for sharing all of those thoughts with us. And now we're going to hear from a couple of other falconers who have been known throughout their time for flying their Harris's Hawks as well. And they've also been friends with Harry for a very long time, and they wanted to share some of their favorite memories and recollections of their time knowing Harry as well. Here's Tom and Jen Colson. Yeah, well, one thing that I would say is desert hawking really changed falconry period and i would say that it was influential around the world because it was one of the few books of the of its time that actually talked about hunting uh you know the competing like the main falconry book that was out there at least for the u.s was north american falconry and hunting hawks by bb and webster and you know, people may not realize today, but the, that book went through a lot of revisions, and the early versions of it, um, you know, really fell short of what a falconer needs to perform falconry. And it even—I remember—it held me back because of some of the bad advice that was in there. Um, that's since been revised, but Harry's book really talked about hunting and told you how to hunt and. Uh, made you want to hunt you know so i think it was revolutionary yeah and to me being from the louisiana swamps the arizona desert was it just i always was interested in the deserts and just so opposite of place i hunt so i always was intrigued by all his desert pictures and cactus and things i actually had a huge cactus greenhouse at one time i got addicted to all that kind of stuff but anyway so we just uh we just became kind of kindred spirits and uh you know we'd see him every every year or two and hunt and uh and then i guess one of the after he got after a while he respected us as far as finding game and all so we he had never caught a bobwhite quail as far as i remember so he wanted to catch a bobwhite with his uh harrisoft refugio which is great harrisoft it's it's the bird he caught the most quail whatever right? we catch over 100 quail a year or in fact quite a bit more than that so anyway, so we went in Odessa, Midland, Texas, uh, hunting the first trip. Found a lot of quail and a lot of rabbits. So we came back and called Harry. Well, Harry, we found Bob White, the crazy, not that far from you. You know, he, he was living, you know, Will, Will Wilcox at the time, I believe, which isn't isn't all that far from uh, West Texas. So Harry never travels. I don't know if you know his birds. He just never would travel. Never travel. Even though he travels all over the country, moved everywhere, but he doesn't go travel when he hunted. He but he had such an entourage. He had, the, he had the horses and all his other things. All the and, dogs. And right. Him. So he just didn't do it. 
but we kept, you know, badgering, badgering, finally go, you know, the, the Bob White, I think you can really get him there, Harry, really get him there. So sure enough, you know, he says, let's go, let's do it. And uh, this was uh, probably around um, 2000, I'm guessing, somewhere around there, a little bit after 2000. So anyway, we, we met him in Odessa and uh, found and, a quail. And got a bunch of friends together. Yeah, too, we got yeah. a whole bunch of friends. They got a bunch of his friends. Yeah, I guess we had about eight of us there at least. And uh, sure enough, we, we'd hunt all day, and then we hunted with Harry in the evening. And uh, sure enough, Bob White gets up, Refugio flies that thing down three, four hundred yards. I'm the only one that can run. Harry, that done, I don't think he had a horse. He didn't bring his horse. So I ran, ran, ran. So when the hawk went down, it was almost dark. I get there. I'm looking for it. There's a there's a passage Harris hawk with the, with the pintail duck on top of a mesquite. It's just killed a pintail. It ends up by a lake, a little lake in the middle of the desert. And I'm looking at this Harris hawk pluck a pintail right in front of me. And I look down, and there's... And there's Harry's bird on the quail at the same time. And I'm going, how do I, you know, this is just a perfect moment. And Harry's back 200 yards back, but I'm kind of like, yeah. hurry, hurry, you know. <laughs> and uh, he gets there and the Harris flew off and the pintail stayed there anyway. But uh, but Harry, and then then Harry's a character. I don't know if you know that, but a real character. So when, once, once he, uh, he, he gets everything under control, he has the hawk hooded and he has the quail in his hand, he starts making the quail talk. He's been, he's been making the lips go up and down. And he's he's so happy. I've never seen Harry that happy. And he has the quail saying all kind of little things. He's got different voices, and we were all laughing. And you know, <laughs> I'll never I'll forget that. But he caught another, another quail or two, and uh, it was a great time. You know, probably the last time he's traveled on him, I think. You know. Yeah, I remember yeah. him. Like you know, he had several dogs, and Andrew was there. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew, South Africa. Yeah, yeah, from South Africa, Andrew. Barnes mm -hmm. was uh, helping him to handle the dogs because you know they were they were a handful, and his continental pointer was way out there, and and uh, called the white dog. And I, I said at some point I was like, "Hey Harry, I haven't seen the white dog in a while. Where's the white dog?" And he says, "That's a good question, Jennifer." <laughs> And so we go looking for the white dog, and the poor white dog is like trembling when we find it because it's on point, you know. And I'm like, I wonder how long that thing's been sitting there trembling, you know. But anyway, the quail. Then he brought in the other dogs to to find the quail that the the because it was pointing way far out, you know, as they do. And so, so we get a flush and, uh, you know, follow where the quail are. And Tom and I hunt birds all the time, at the, or at least we were at the time. So we were noting where the quail put in and we're watching the dogs and they're, Harry and Andrew were digging in one spot and digging in another. And I was just looking around. And I was like, man, I thought one of those quail went right over there. And so I said, you know, Harry, I think there's one here. And I step right there, it flushes, and it goes like a quarter mile, and the Harrison goes after it. And it's out of, out of our sight because of plants and stuff. And that's when we end up mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the pintail and, yeah, and uh, find his quail. But, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a good flight. Yeah. And then uh, and you have to talk about Beth, too, when you talk about Harry, because Beth is put up. I mean, she's traveled, I mean, I don't know how many times they've moved, maybe eight, ten times in their life. And she's hosted all sorts of strange people, including us. I mean, strangers out of the blue show up and, you know, Harry's house always had somebody there. And Harry didn't kind of entertain you very much. He just kind of has a room in the back and you went in the back and then, you know, he lived his life and you lived yours. And it was a kind of a wonderful, easy going. It was always kind of easy going without any stress. You didn't feel like 
Nobody was entertaining. Nobody had to go out to eat to do anything. It was just a, a relaxed atmosphere right, right from the beginning. And I really respected that. And uh, Yeah, so yeah. one thing that I would say is a real success point in Harry's falconry is that he's very persistent. And, you know, he, j just like all the people that are good falconers or, or exceptional falconers, they're the ones that do it every day and they just really mm -hmm. get out there and their birds are important to them and catching something with their birds is important to them. So he's going to do it. It may take him a while to figure a particular bird out or particular quarry out or a hunting spot, but he's going to do it until he's successful and then he's going to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, he's, he's, I guess he's the only person I've ever known that all of us are complain about the lack of game. I mean, I complain about it all the time and all our friends do. And But Harry was the only person I've ever known that actually did something about it. I mean, drastically would do something about game. We met him when he was in Wilcox, Arizona, which is southeast Arizona. He had a lot of quail when we first visited, but the quail just died out as they do. It just They just went. You couldn't find a quail with a drought or whatever it was. Didn't matter. Harry says, I think I'm going to move. And I didn't take him seriously. I mean, he was already 75 years old or something, you know. I mean, what, 70 years old? He's not going to move, you know. He, you know they, they, they'll, they'll be back next year, quail. But he couldn't wait. Sure enough, you know, next time talk to Harry, he's got a moving van and he's going up to Kingman, Arizona. Building a house on a hill. Building a house on a hill. You go, what, Harry? <laughs> And it was, you know, he solved the problem, and then he had quail again, and then, you know. But, yeah, that's another thing. Harry always, always, uh, in his books, always about hunting, and, and that, that was my idea. It was always about, I have to catch things. I have to catch things every day. It's just in my genes, and I want to, I had a thrill to chase, and Harry had the same thing, and we just, I just, once I read those books, it changed everything. I read, you know, just every page of them over and over again, and then, you know, of course, I tried to, follow all Harry's instructions on flying the Cooper's Hawks and the Harrison. I don't think I got it half right, but it didn't matter. You know, <laughs> I had a lot of game and it all kind of worked out. And uh, I think if you met Harry after a while, you go, all what he's written is kind of, he actually didn't do it that way either, if you know what I mean. Well, <laughs> I know he did. <laughs> yeah, it depends. I mean, one thing that he does practice mm -hmm. that's really important to good falconry is weight mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. And he developed the, what was it, the 20 22 hour, hour yeah, yeah, weight control yeah. that, you know. Yeah, it's uh, important, yeah. They're very important. Try yeah. flying a Kestrel or a Sharpshin mm -hmm. Hawk without that, let me just say. Yeah. And you can, and I know Matt would chime right in there for sure, too, mm -hmm. Matt Mullinex. But, uh, you know, being being consistent on the bird's weight and knowing it's what its hunting weight is and having it mm -hmm. at that proper weight it really keeps the bird healthy. It gives you a lot of action, and it gives you field control. So, well, we love uh, him. Love Harry. Love Harry. Yeah, and he's uh, yeah, he just changed everything with, with me with the Harris Hawks. All of a sudden, I just kept, you know, going on and getting more and more of them. And then, then I got into breeding, and then then I sent some to Harry, and then other people, and you know, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It all basically all due to Harry, because uh, you know, I was flying red tails at the time, and uh. You know, they were barely Harris Hawks were just coming in. I guess I got my first Harris Hawk in 77. So Harry, Harry's second Desert Hawking 2 came out in 76. So the next winter, I went out, I got me a Harris Hawk, and that changed my life, you know. And uh, here I am today, still pulling Harris Hawks a long time later. And uh, anyway, that was uh, really awesome. And then he was so kind to ask us to write uh, three chapters in his uh, 
in his book in 96, I think it was, Desert Hawking with a little help from our friends. That was a really honor to write three chapters. Jen, Jen did a most of it as usual, of course. But uh, I was there to assist. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say that Harry is instrumental in bringing the Harris Hawk to the forefront of falconry. Mm -hmm. I mean, he lived in a good place. Uh, they're mm -hmm. very desert adapted. And it turns out that that they're even though you know where they hunt in the desert it's pretty specific habitat they're really adaptable to a lot of falconry situations all over the world i mean you know there are people flying them in japan and and the czech republic and and south africa and you name it uh so that was big to have desert hawking introducing the harris hawk as a real hunting species that can catch a lot of game mm -hmm. And he understood its cooperation, its cooperative nature. So he wasn't just saying, hey, this is a bird that's successful. He was understanding its psyche and uh, helping falconers to understand that, that you could use that to your advantage. Yep. And then we were, he was so kind until we ended up with his great uh, male Harris Hawk refugio. He uh, sent him to us after Hurricane Katrina. When we had lost all our birds, and he was one of our main breeders. Through Jamaica Smith, right? Through, through Jamaica, Jamaica, he gave yeah. it to Jamaica, yeah. and then Jamaica sent it to us, and that was a big, big help to get ourselves back on on firm ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wonderful. But uh, yeah, so the idea of refugio is being such an exceptional mm -hmm. Harris hawk uh, as a hunter. Um, I don't know about his temperament. I think Harry sometimes, or Jamaica certainly said mm -hmm. sometimes he's a little bit of a jerk, but he was a pretty decent temperament. Mm -hmm. But this bird uh, definitely, you know, when it was retired from hunting, needed to go into a breeding program. And so since we were interested in selective breeding, we had just the female we wanted to match him with and put out some really fine birds. Mm -hmm. That could go on and on about Harry. I mean, but I'm sure you, I know you've interviewed him and other people, but, but hey, I would love to think, think of things. I could talk about Harry all night if I had a glass of, oh, Harry likes, uh, hey, what, he likes good scotch, by the way, as you probably know, Joe. <laughs> yeah, like a, a little toddy at night. We always used to have one of those, yeah. Oh, a little toast. When we would go to visit him, we, you know, go to New Orleans and find a, a nice bottle of single malt, mm -hmm. and we would bring it, and that's like the first thing oh, yeah. we walk through the door, hand him the single malt, and he'd say, oh, you brought the medicine. <laughs> yes, they said. That's right. And he, hey, and he's still alive thanks to the medicine. Yeah, I mean. think it's, uh, <laughs> both Tom and I really owe a lot of our falconry to Harry, and uh, we really appreciate him as a longtime friend. And we've met a lot of people through him, too, that have mm -hmm. become close friends, uh, like Rodrigo Monroe Wilson and, and others. And uh, so... He, He's been an inspiration in so many ways, you know, a teacher, a friend, a hunting companion, and then a also, leader by example. Yeah, yeah a leader by example. Yeah. I remember talking to him oftentimes about con raptor conservation work, too, and, and keeping falconry going and what the problems were with the falconry community or with antis opposing falconry. He's just continued to be a leader, uh, seeing our sport perpetuated and moving forward, and, and uh, he's a great asset and a, and a great friend.
Well said, Tom and Jen. Thank you all for being a part of this as well. And uh, next, we're going to hear from one of our uh, previous guests from Mexico, being Dr. Rodrigo Monroe Wilson. And he has some things that he would like to share as well. So Harry McElroy, I think, uh, was a great influence in a lot of Mexican and Latin American falconers of, of my generation because uh, he lived in Peru where he flew by colored hawks and aplomado falcons. Uh, I was living in Peru at that time too. It, it's, uh, it's funny because we didn't meet at that time, but uh, I then became friends with Oscar Bengolea, who passed away a couple years ago, but he learned from, from Harry and uh, he had a big influence in his falconry. And then um, I think Harry lived in Mexico, in Querétaro, in 1992, I think until 94, where he, where he flew uh, mostly aplomado falcons at quail. And he had a big influence on, on several, uh, you know, Mexican, Mexican falconers. I met Harry through Oscar Bengolea and visited him in uh, Wilcox, Arizona. I think that was probably around 2006. And he was flying a Passage Harris Hawk, uh, an imprint, Tiersel Gosshawk, and also a female Aplomato Falcon. And we were flying one bird each day, and we were catching quail every day. So uh, that was an interesting experience for me. I visited him for a week and uh, learned a lot. And his, his falconry techniques, I think, uh, you know, opened up a big, a big door for, for all of us flying desert quail and, of course, flying Harris hawks and uh, those uh, species, you know, the uh, Cooper's hawks, Aplomato falcons, even, even goshawks, right? So uh, I think he, he's had a big influence, always thinking out of the box, always uh, thinking about what's best for the bird and how to get the, the most out of a bird. For example, keeping his exhibitors free lofted, which is something that uh, I hadn't seen before. He kept his Cooper's hawks free in a chamber. He would just walk in and call them to the fist, put them on a scale, throw a tidbit into a transport box. You know, he didn't hood the birds. His, his birds were never tethered to a perch. Their feathers were always perfect. You know, Cooper's hawks are notorious for for destroying themselves when they're when they're tied to perches, no, no matter if they're imprints or or passage birds or whatever. So so I think that you know he's continuously thinking out of the box and and, and being very innovative in, in what he was what he was doing. And he's had a very big influence on on most uh, you know desert hawkers, I guess, from 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 my generation. Not to not to mention uh, the. 24-hour uh, weight control, uh, you know, feeding cycle and, you know, weighing the birds. And I guess he's the one that figured out how to keep your bird at a certain weight and have your bird at a precise weight at the same time the next day ready to fly. You know, that's, that's another thing that I think we all have to thank him for. Over the years, I've translated a couple articles that... Uh, they used for the for the journal for the Spanish Falconers Association, the AECA, 
and I translated several of those articles. So we had a lot of phone calls when I, when there was something that I didn't understand and I want I didn't want to be uh, or I wanted to be accurate in my translation. So we communicated a lot. Uh, that was the only time I actually visited him at Wilcox. We had a we had a great time. Um, he was uh, always surprised that how we you know we always pinpointed where the quail was going. I think that I had better eyesight at that time, so so I could follow the long flights and see you know where in which a patch of cactus or a brush the the quail had put in. So. I have, uh, I think I have the desert hawking uh, with a little help from my friends. And the dedication says, uh, I will always remember how you could reclaim quail from thick cover <laughs> or, or something like that. But he always, I mean, to, to, to tell you the truth, uh, he always had a, a super team with several dogs so that the dogs did, did most of the work. You know, the dogs and the birds were always on the quail and we were kind of following along you know just just following the flight but most of the time you know we would go out there on the on the trailer out in the open desert you know take out the mules or he had a horse and a mule at that time and uh, you know we would ride out in the desert release i think it was four dogs that he was running at the time and and any of the of the birds he was flying like i mentioned a harris hawk or an aplomato or a tearsel goshawk and it was really a great experience for me because we were catching quail every day with different birds in completely different styles, right? Like um, the Harris hawk and the goss hawk and the aplomato were all doing their thing uh, in their own in their own way, and um, and it was it was really you know very interesting and very you know, enlightening for me to, to watch and, and be able to partake in, 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 in that experience. So, uh, yeah, that, 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 I guess that's, uh, that's a little anecdote, uh, with here. And I have a dedication with the book and I have all his books. Uh, some of them have become horrendously expensive lately. You know, they're, they're like, uh, real collector's items. Right. But I, I, I think I have most of them and, 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 and they're, they're always, uh, you know, he was, always thinking out of the box and thinking, you know, about how to, to be, to handle the bird or let the bird develop, you know, its best uh, characteristics, right? It, its best features to fly, you know, a certain quarry. But how to, to hunt with a bird without, you know, messing, messing around uh, as little as possible with its nature, Right, like like an exhibitor, let him be an exhibitor. Don't don't try to 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 make an exhibitor a Harrisock, which you'll 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 never do. So I mean, so never never, like try to make a bird uh, be tamer than it it will naturally be. You know, we started with passage uh, Cooper socks, then moved on to imprint Cooper socks, and that was like a real, you know, game changer. Um, just in keeping the birds healthy and, and having a strong bird that, that would fly quarry, uh, you know, fast and, and hard, uh, it's not the same, you know, having to cut down the weight of a passage Cooper hog just to be able to handle it, than to have an imprint, which is at a very good weight, 
you, you, you don't have to, to keep them hungry or, or anything like that. And, you know, that also makes you have a healthier bird and a, and a bird that's going to fly stronger, the bird which, which is not scared. And then the free lofting, too, was, was something that really, I mean, helped me keep my birds in one piece because the Cooper's dogs are always trying to destroy themselves one way or the other if you tie them up. So uh, his way of keeping the birds free lofted and then, you know, fr from the free loft chamber, just put them in a transport box, no hooding, no nothing. Just, just I mean, I, for years, I, 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 I wanted to hood my my cooper socks and and uh, i think you know it, it was it was a mistake you know so why why uh why, why try to to confront the the bird's nature you know and instead of you know going along with it and, and finding a way of getting the most out of the bird without without confronting it so i i think that's one of the 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 big characteristics of of mcelroy's uh, you know, falconry or or, or 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 philosophy behind his 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 falconry. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people knew him a lot better than I did. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, what I can say is that he was you know really influential in uh, in in a lot of uh, Mexican and Latin American falconers, at least in in my generation. You know, guys that are around 50. Many generations of falconers have benefited from, from, from what he's wrote and published over, over the years. And he'll continue to have a big influence on, on the younger generations of, of desert hawkers or dirt hawkers or how, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, people, people flying Harris hawks and Cooper's hawks and Aplomados will always find a, a wealth of, of, of knowledge and interesting philosophy in his books. All right. Thanks, Rodrigo, for contributing that on some short notice and, you know, appreciate your contribution to the episode. And I want to end this episode by getting a final thought and sentiment from his wife, Beth, of course, and being a, a falconer as well. You know, she has, of course, hawked and had more experiences with Harry and, you know, doing all these different things than, than anybody else has. So I felt that it was important to share some final thoughts and uh, have a contribution from her as well. And we managed to record that on the last day that we recorded everything with Harry. So I'm going to end this episode with this final thought from her. And as I stated before, thank you all again so much for sticking with us during this series and we've got some other great things coming up for you all here in the near future but all that being said here is beth and thank you all again for listening harry began falconry around 1948 he ended in 2021 and I was blessed with living with a hubby who had a passion. And that is the way to live your life. Follow your passion and bring, bring your joy into your own heart and those around you. And I am very thankful that I got this um, family and this experience and met many of a lovely falconer besides my Harry. <laughs>